that reminder that we all need, that uh, sometimes we're in the, we feel like we're in the wind and the waves, and we don't always know where that, where that leaves us. Uh, but God, we just thank you so much that you are the God that never fails us, and thank you for reminding us of that today. Uh, Father, we know that there are so many people right now that are struggling in the hospitals, that are uh, in different, uh, different stages of bad news, of illness. We had even just last night a little uh, new baby born through parents of Journey Church, born born about 10 weeks early, and we just pray a very special prayer for them this morning. And Father, sometimes we bring our woundedness and our brokenness to this place, and we pray that you would be able to do mighty and wonderful and powerful things, uh, even in, in the place where, where we have nothing to offer you and nothing to bring. Thank you for the reminder today that our lives are built on the rock. Father, that the wind and the waves will come, but that we will be okay. So thank you for today. Thank you for this time we've had to just worship together. We pray that as we enter into your word today, that you would reveal your truth in our lives and in our hearts. And may we, uh, may, may we leave different than when we came today. And we ask this all through Jesus and the church together says, amen. Makes me want to sing the old song, The Wise Man Built His House. Remember that one? Uh, that was uh, kind of a VBS song uh, many, many years ago, but it was like that. I want to celebrate a couple things with you today. Number one is, uh, we're kind of, uh, kind of showing you this. Last week, we surpassed half, over half of what we need in order to get started on a new building and a new project. And so that was just, uh, just amazing. I think the first, uh, the first six weeks or first eight weeks, I'm not quite sure if I remember exactly when we announced this for the first time, but... Um, we are doing really well, and we're kind of getting to where we, where we need to get to slowly. Now it'll take, of course, a year to get the rest of it uh, because everybody gives in the beginning. But I know that many of you have honored those commitments, and uh, we're moving forward. Uh, doesn't the building outside look great uh, with our racing stripe? Uh, really exciting. Um, you know, there's lots of cool things. It's doing, uh, doing really, uh, r- really good. Everything's coming along well. But I just wanted to share that with you today, make sure you knew uh, what we were doing. Another thing that I want to share, I know Brad's going to talk about this at the end. Uh, we're having a baptism Sunday on May 15th, which is just a little, little over a month from now. And uh, this is one of our Sundays where we offer people the opportunity to be a part of this. It's on our announcement scroll. I don't think it's quite going to be announced just yet. But I want to let you know that in two weeks from today, um, I'm actually going to be, Brad will be preaching. I'm actually going to be teaching in, in the student room with some of our students and some of our kids and some of you families as well. And anybody is invited to come to that uh, on that Sunday. The goal behind it, and I want to be very clear about this, we want your kids and your families to make the commitment of baptism. We believe in that. It is a covenantal moment. It is part of what we talk about. And maybe I, I know that there's some parents that have never done this. I'll tell you what, do it as a family. It's, it's powerful. It's meaningful. And we're going to have fun during our, our time on, I can't remember the date, actually, the 20, 24th. Uh, will be in the, in the student room. And part of this is just, I want you to hear it from me. We, we are intentionally, or I am intentionally going to be teaching because this is a commitment we want your kids to make. We're not going to force them to do it. We're not going to tell them they have to do it or else the way that maybe I heard it, you know, growing up as a kid. If you don't do this today, you're probably going to go to hell uh, kind of thing. We're not going to do that. Um, if you would like to, it's $5 extra. That'll be a little bit at the end of the class. And I've seen some of your kids and they probably need to hear that. Um, <laughs> anyway, but, uh, but, but if, you, if, you have a, if you have a child that maybe is in Journey Kids, that you know has been asking these questions, 
we want you to know this is an open event for anybody. If you're an adult and have never made this commitment, we would love you to come there on the 24th and be a part of that because this is a huge covenant moment that we want people to be a part of. So I just want you to hear it from me that that is, is what we're doing. Uh, today we're continuing in our Hebrew study. Obviously we'll deviate from this next, uh, next Sunday because it's, it's Easter. And as Brad mentioned already, today is Palm Sunday. And if you grew up in a church that wasn't, you know, they didn't really celebrate the, uh, the weeks or celebrate these kind of events, maybe you go, now what, what is this? What, what is Palm Sunday? We're going to talk about that in, uh, in, in just a moment. Today what I want to do is something that I don't often do in, with Scripture. Not, not because I don't want to do it, but because it doesn't always give us the opportunity to do these things. What we realize, if you read the New Testament, is that different books, there's kind of these clumps of books that are written in similar times or in similar decades. And, when, when, you know, you have a Bible, I have a Bible that has, you know, 66 books and it's nicely bound. And I think sometimes we forget that when you were part of an early church, they didn't hand out Bibles on Sunday morning, not, not even for the fact that it wasn't finished yet, uh, but the other fact that a lot of people couldn't read and write. And so sometimes they would have two or three books, and that's all that they would have, two or three letters that were copies of copies of copies that they would read during the time of uh, w when they would gather as a church. And I think sometimes we forget that. And part of the reason why I tell you that is because when you only had two or three letters or two or three books, you would generally read those things in combination with each other. And so today, we're going to read Hebrews with the Gospels in mind. If you're an English major, it's what we call a juxtaposition. I know that's a real fancy word. What that really means is this. We have two stories that are somewhat similar and somewhat different, but they're meant to be read together. Does that make sense? And so what we're going to find is two different stories. The Gospels are very narrative, meaning they sound like stories. And then Jesus went there, and then Jesus went there, and then they did this, and then they did that. And it kind of unfolds the story. But then you get to a book like the book of Hebrews, they're not really running any narrative. They're not telling you where he went and what he did. It's more of a teaching book, if that makes sense. The Gospels set the stage for the sacrifice of Jesus. The Gospels, all the Gospels, all four that we have, have the end goal of getting Jesus to the cross. But I want to tell you something, that Hebrews narrates what's happening through the sacrifice of Jesus. So even though we have the story of the Gospels, and it's telling us they went there and there and there, and they did this and this and this, a lot of times there's a ton of confusion surrounding what's actually going on. Like one of the things is, well, what is Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday is at the end of, of the Gospels, especially in Matthew, and it talks about when Jesus makes his entrance, which we'll get to in a second, into Jerusalem, the people celebrate him like a king coming back from battle. He rides in on a donkey, which he didn't ride on, in on his big white horse like they would. They would generally ride in on a colt or a, or a little white donkey to show some humility, even though they'd been victorious. And they would come in and people would break off palm branches and put them down on the ground. And then eventually when they'd run out of those, they started taking their jackets off and, and other things. And it was kind of this, 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 this you know, th there's some honor in, in the midst of that. We still do that. Where do we still lay something down before people walk on it? Think about it. Where? Been to a wedding lately? Right? They put the runner down. Why? Because it just signifies something, something positive and powerful and meaningful. 
And that's what happens on Palm Sunday. So let's look at what is the what does the gospel of Matthew say? And I'm not going to read all these texts. The first part of Matthew, the first 15 chapters of Matthew, is unfolding the story of who Jesus is, where he was born, uh, you know, what kind of some of the power that he has, some of the miracles that he does, some of the sermons that he preaches, and we see it. But there is a distinct moment in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? Oh, I'm the Baptist, Elijah. And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, son of God. You're Messiah. Christ and Messiah mean exactly the same thing. You are the king that has come to save us from slavery. You're the next Moses. You're the next Joshua. You're, you're, you're the big dog that's coming to take us and to release us not from Egypt, but from this Roman oppression that we live in. And Jesus compliments, wow, Simon, good job, Peter. You get it. You understand that God has revealed this to you. Then a little bit later in Matthew 16, Jesus predicts his death. And, and this is this prediction of death text where he says, okay, now I've got to go to Jerusalem. And they're like, yeah, and I'm going to die. And Peter says, guys, I've got this. As the newly appointed head, chairman of the board, um, I'm going to just have a little word with, with, with Jesus here. Jesus, buddy, love you. As a, uh, as a member of your high council, um, just want to let you know, going to Jerusalem, we're all about it. The death stuff, let's, let's, let's back up on that, that talk a little bit. What does Jesus say to him? Yeah, you're in the way. You need to get behind me. Don't you find sometimes that's how it works with God? He's complimenting us one minute, and the next minute he's like disciplining us. A lot of fun to follow. Matthew 17, we have this moment called the transfiguration, which quite literally means Jesus changes in figure. He goes up on the mountain with a few of his disciples, and there he meets Moses and Elijah. And we're not quite sure what that looks like, but only a few of them get to actually experience that and see that. Moses representing the law, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Elijah representing the best of the prophets, defeating the enemies of God uh, on Mount Carmel and, and stuff like that. I mean, there's, th th he is equal. What he's about to do is equivalent to the size of these events. His disciples don't really know what to say. We see that story. And then Jesus comes down in Matthew 18 and he starts talking about how do we deal with sin? There's a problem of sin in the world and we have to deal with it. And he gives us some conflict management skills. If you have a problem, go and talk to that person. Try to work it out between you. And if that doesn't work, go and take someone else. And if that doesn't work, go, go in front of a group of spiritual people and try to resolve it. And, and, and there is this dealing with, we don't know how to deal with sin and sin is a problem. This is how you deal with it. And then in Matthew 19 and 20, he sort of deviates and he talks about divorce and divided servants. And we think, Jesus, what are you doing? Now, now you suddenly have this passage about, about marriage and divorce. And you talk about you can't, you know, that there's this division of people. Some servants will serve and some won't. And what are you talking about? And then in Matthew 21, we have him coming into Jerusalem or what we call Palm Sunday. Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. People think this is the new king. And then he goes, in Matthew, later in Matthew 21, he goes into the temple and he sees them buying and selling animals. And he clears the temple in Matthew 21. We see him just going in and driving people out. If you read Matthew's gospel, this is too far for the religious leaders. This is why they kill him. 
listen, we, we're fine with all your teachings and helping people, but when you get in our Kool-Aid, that's a line that we're going to draw. That's a boundary we're not going to cross. And so you've got to go. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells some parables about weddings, and he talks about marriage in the resurrection. Hmm, maybe the divorce passage of Matthew 19 is starting to make sense a little bit more now. Uh, Jesus is talking about what does resurrection and marriage and the coming together, the old is going to be divided from, the old is going to be put away, and there's going to be something new that is coming. In Matthew 23, he tells some parables about judgment, and he says, listen, it's coming, it's happening, there's going to be a dividing line Matthew 27, uh, 26 and 27 is the story of how Jesus dies. Goes to the upper room, goes and prays, and then is ultimately has this trial and goes to the cross. See, Matthew takes us from the declaration of who Jesus is to his death in just 11 chapters. It's a very efficient writing. I would encourage you as, you, as we take this week to prepare for Easter, start in Matthew, uh, start in Matthew 16, where Jesus reveals to his disciples, "I am the Christ and the Messiah." That is the moment that he is set on that mission, and from that to the end of the text is the unfolding of how that happens. And there's so much; it's overwhelming what happens, and they're just going in a hundred different directions. And this is where the writer of Hebrews comes back, and Hebrews fills in what's really going on. Hey guys, this is actually what's really happening. This is what's going on. And so it would probably be very common in, in reading of Scripture that they would read something out of Matthew's Gospel or Mark's Gospel or Luke's Gospel. John was written way later. And then they would take this, this letter of the Hebrew and they would, they would read these things together and the one would help explain the other. In Hebrews, we have kind of a similar function. In Hebrews chapter 9, there is this talk of worship and blood, which is kind of this weird, uh, there's this tabernacle talk and, and all kinds of things. But remember, Hebrews is written to Jewish people who know their story very well. And so they're gonna, he's going to borrow that language as he talks about Jesus. Now we're going to read, read three texts today in the book of Hebrews. Some of them are a little longer and a little convoluted, but hopefully the theme of them will become evident as we read. The first one I'm going to read in Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. And remember, we talked a little bit last week about Jesus being the high priest and the mediator, and, and they didn't need to go back to an old temple model, but they needed to step forward with Jesus into a new model. But in verse 11 of chapter 9, book of Hebrews, it says, but when Christ came as high priest, of the good things that are already here, that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of creation. So Jesus went through this this place that mediates the presence of God, which was the tabernacle and then the temple. But it's saying this is a different different tabernacle that he went through. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially, uh, ceremonially unclean sanctify them 
so that they are outwardly clean, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the eternal promise the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant now i I know that's a lot of language and you're thinking i'm gonna have to read that again You, you probably will it's it's heavy what it's really saying is jesus has ransomed us us with his own life he didn't go in there with a sacrifice he went in there Because he was unblemished. That's why he can fit this role. Let's go on a little bit. In verse 19 of chapter 9. We're still in chapter 9. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people. Where did that happen? Mount Sinai. He took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop. And he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. Do you remember words where where somebody else says, this is the blood of the covenant? Yeah, if you read Matthew, it's just happened in the Last Supper. Verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled the blood on both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law required that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness so it's just reminding us in the old testament it was only through blood that people were forgiven of things and i love the phrase because it's kind of an oxymoron you sprinkle things to make them clean if you sprinkle things with blood they're not clean but they're cleansed i don't understand how that works but apparently that's what happened verse 23 it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, saying the temple and the tabernacle are a copy. What we have on earth is a copy of what is actually in heaven. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way that the high priests entered the most holy place every year with blood that was not their own. Otherwise, Christ would would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as Jesus, just sorry, just as people are destined to, to die once and after that to face judgment so christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to not to bear sin but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him bible tells us in hebrews the sacrifice of jesus takes away our sin Jesus gave his life and stepped in our stead, like like took a bullet for us. He's like a secret service agent to a president, right? He will get in the way 
that life will happen behind him, although death will happen in front of him. Last piece. Chapter 10, verse 19. Book of Hebrews. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know what this text says so simply and so beautifully and so wonderfully? It says we are saved. We are the saved people of God. Not because we were good enough, not because we had the right ideas, not because we saw it the right way, but because of Jesus, because he was willing to lay down his life so that we could find ours. You see, Hebrews is beautiful because Hebrews explains what the gospel of Matthew, what the disciples, what we cannot see. When they see Jesus going into Jerusalem, they think he's got to be the king. He's going to take the throne. He's going to free the people. And that's exactly what he does. <laughs> exactly what he does. They just can't see it. And the writer of Hebrews writes these words and says, you just didn't see it. Because your minds are still stuck on the, heavenly, uh, on the earthly things. And what Jesus done, did is tied to the heavenly things. The curtain that is split, remember it represented the divide between the Holy of Holies and the most holy place, and it was divided. Hebrews says, that's Jesus. His body was broken so that there would be no more barrier between us and God. We're saved because of who he is. The, the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of Jesus washes us clean. Which I don't quite know how blood washes you clean. That's because there's great mystery in How is it that Jesus was able to be for us what he needed to be? Before we knew it, before we understood it. This is why when we get to that stage of making covenants ourselves, like the covenant of baptism, it's a big deal. It's not just a moment of us, you know, ceremonially cleaning somebody, cleansing somebody. It's putting people in touch with the blood of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews seems to think that's a big deal. When we look at the story of Jesus, we have hope. And it's something we've never had. Our story has hope. Whatever brokenness you brought in today, whatever difficulty you brought in today, you've got a loved one in the hospital, you've got a premature baby, you've got somebody with a bad diagnosis, you're depressed, you're overwhelmed. It says it doesn't have to end there. That's not the end of the story because your story is filled with hope. 
Christians living in Jerusalem can see is when is God going to do something greater? And the writer of Hebrews says he's already done it. You've got to find it. You've got to touch it. You've got to take hold of it with all of your might. Being saved is a huge thing. It's a big thing. It's a big deal. And the reason why it has power is because Jesus rose from the dead. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week, and that is no easy feat. There's a reason why that gives our lives an immense amount of hope. So it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what's going on. It's not about the past or even the present. It's about what God has already done and what he will do and us finding our place in the midst of that story. We should celebrate Palm Sunday. I think it's tragic that we don't. Because Palm Sunday is about us making room for Jesus to come into our lives. Think about the symbolism. We, we start by cutting off the branches, right? Cutting off the external things and putting those in front of you, laying them down. And then after we run out of external things to blame our lives on, what do we start doing? start taking off our outer clothes and not to push the image too far but if Jesus is fully realized in our lives what are we wearing nothing we are undone in the presence of God it is only when we have nothing more to give him that hope will flood our lives So I don't want to end by saying you got to take your clothes off because uh, this might become the weird worship service real quick. But, but you know what I mean. We've got to take it off. We've got to lay it down. And when we do that, the King will come and we will know we are safe. Father, today, uh, just thank you for these, these, these words. Thank you for the power of story. I thank you that it helps us maybe to see our, our lives a little better. And Father, we, we know we just don't get it. We don't understand it. No matter how much we teach on it, we're always a little lost when it comes to how you're working and what you're doing. But God, I just pray today in this moment, in this time, that we would create some room in our lives, some time in our schedule some place for you for you to come for you to be present God that we would be willing to take off the outer shell and lay it down that we would stop living our lives so defensively but that we would embrace embrace you Father, may we take off the clothes of slavery, the, the clothes of bondage, the clothes that stop us from being free. May we let your presence come into our lives. Father, thank you for this opportunity today as we continue in worship. If we need to stop and pray, if we need to come forward and pray, if 
we need to symbolically lay things down, whatever it might be, God. Would you just work in us and through us and do your work? And please save us. We ask this all through the perfect name of Jesus. And the church together.